From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Bill Shkurdi was an undergraduate student at The Ohio State University from 1964 to 68 and a graduate student from 1972 to 74. He was an administrator there from 1990 to 2010. During this time, he witnessed tremendous changes at the university, some of which in the earlier years he's researched and chronicled in his latest book, The Ohio State University in the 60s, The Unraveling of the Old Order, one of the first books from the Ohio State University Press Trillium imprint. Welcome to Craft, Bill Shakurdi. Glad to be here, Doug. Well, tell me about the origin of your interest in the 60s at The Ohio State University, a, a great time to be looking at the history of an institution. Well, I always thought there was a great story to be told here, and there was a sense that because this happened in the Midwest and in Ohio State, somehow it didn't get much national attention and really didn't get chronicled, and I thought this would be a great time to do that while most of the students at least are still around and, and can do it. There was a book uh, that, that kind of got me going on this called uh, Berkeley at War, Berkeley in the 60s, and uh, it was an excellent book, and a lot went on at Berkeley, but a lot went on here as well. And as I got into it, there were two fundamental questions that the book, that I wanted the book to answer. Number one was Ohio State was relatively peaceful compared to other campuses throughout the, most of the 60s, all the way to 1969. In fact, President Nixon was thinking of coming here to give the commencement address in June of 1969. That's how safe they thought the campus was. Okay. But somewhere between June of 1969 and the spring of 1970, the campus erupted, and when it erupted here, it was much more severe in terms of the number of students involved, the amount of property damage, the number of law enforcement involved than any other campus uh, in the country. And I think what happened is the administration was very successful in keeping the lid tighter and tighter, but when it blew, it really blew. So the book talks about it, and, and it really didn't happen overnight. It kind of built up over a 10-year period. So that's the first question the, the book addresses. And the interesting part about that, everybody thinks it was Cambodia and Kent State, and all of those played a role in this. The major confrontation here at OSU occurred on Wednesday night, April 29th. President Nixon did not go on TV to announce the Cambodian incursion until Thursday night, April 30th, and the Kent State um, activity occurred over that weekend, and the shootings occurred on May 4th, after the stuff at OSU had already started. So mm -hmm. it was an interesting thing. And a lot of students who I interviewed told me, well, yeah, Vietnam and Cambodia were important, but more importantly, it was a revolt against the university, which is a whole interesting angle to this whole thing. The other question I asked myself when I did this was, okay, so after the riots happened and all this stuff happened, how did the university get Humpty Dumpty back together again? And that's the, the, I have a fairly long epilogue in the book, which is rather unusual, but I thought another great story was even though the administration got caught sleeping to some extent by the degree of student unrest, it kind of gave them a wake-up call and they realized they had to make some changes. So a number of reforms we take for granted today came out of that period. And, and although the, I, I am somewhat critical of the administration, the way they handled the strike initially, uh, I thought they did a good job of trying to recover from it. What was the revolt that they were proposing against the university? Why was that such a, 
a reaction at the time? It was kind of a a confluence of a number of different things that all came together. And in fact, there were a couple faculty members who who, uh, specialized in in, uh, analyzing disasters, what we would call now first responder training and, and that kind of thing. And they wrote a letter to the administration in 1968, two years before all this happened, saying, you know, you're really coming down hard on black students and on anti-war protesters and stuff, and we don't see anything imminent like next fall, but you need to be careful because if all these disaffected parties ever get together, they could they could cause major mischief for the university. That letter was never answered or responded to, and in fact what happened in the spring of 1970 is a number of different disaffected groups got together and then the university response was so heavy-handed that upset a lot of the students who were kind of fence-sitters or middle-of-the-roaders, and then they kind of got involved as well, so it kind of built on itself. Among the groups, obviously, the, the, uh, a primary cause was the disaffection of African-American students who felt the university was not being responsive to their needs and it was not a welcoming climate. Then you had the anti-war people. You also had people that thought um, the university should welcome um, uh, dissent and discussion and felt the administration was being too heavy-handed and then all of that. And, and then you had, to some degree, the women's movement then starting and a variety of other things. The other part that a lot of people overlook is a lot of the students were just generally unhappy and felt like they were being treated like numbers instead of people. Mm-hmm. So it was things like in the fall of 1969, there was something like 8,000 students closed out of courses. I mean, that's an incredible number. Well, is that uh, undergrad and grad? Is that, yeah, but it was uh, primarily undergrad. undergraduate. Okay. Uh, there was also the university had moved a year earlier to enforce what was called the dorm rule, which required freshmen and sophomores to live in dorms whether they wanted to or not. The students who didn't want to live in the dorms didn't like it because it forced them to live where they didn't want to live. The students who were willing to live in the dorms didn't like it because it forced the dorms to accommodate people who didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. So that was another issue. And just a, a general... Um, um, there was kind of a, a spirit of rebellion in the air that, that was across the country, but there were specific issues here at Ohio State that kind of came together. Okay. Now, during the time that that was happening in 1969 and that you were uh, not on campus, That's so great. you did a lot of interviews with uh, people that were on campus for the book and a lot of archival research, what was your feeling when you were interviewing people about their sort of emotional connection to that time, even at the time you were interviewing them, how did they react to it? What sort of issues did you see with them? It's uh, interesting. You you chose the term emotional reaction. It was clear after all these years talking to these students, they still felt very strongly about it. And um, I asked them, I said, you know, looking back 40 years, do you think it was worth it and and that kind of thing? And a lot of the students who led the protests were disappointed they didn't accomplish more. But almost to a person... They said, you know, even though we didn't accomplish what we wanted to, I think they accomplished more than they give themselves credit to, which we can talk about in a minute. But even though they felt that, they said, we still felt it was worth it. And it was one of the most worthwhile things we ever did. And it was kind of a generational thing. You know, they, for the most part, were baby boomers. These are the people who were born after the end of World War II. Uh, one, someone once described it as, as the large number of those students is, is like a pig through a python. And the first big class of baby boomers was the fall of 1964, which is the class I was part of, who were people born in 1946. And as we grew up, 
We were told we were the largest generation ever. We were the wealthiest generation ever. We were the smartest generation ever. A lot was expected of us. And naturally, when you're young, you kind of get hear that and you absorb it and you kind of then develop expectations of yourself. And as we looked at a society that was very prosperous but was not meeting everything that it professed to be doing in terms of treating men and women equally, in terms of how we treat African Americans and other minorities and so forth. It kind of led to a, a kind of an edge that, that we had in looking at the world and feeling we needed to change it and feeling the university administration and the trustees and the elected officials were dragging their feet and kind of needed a swift kick to get going. You occupy a really interesting point here because you're not only you know, coming from it, uh, as a student, but you were then later an administrator uh, who was, you know, dealing with students. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how, you know, looking back from the vantage point of having most recently been an administrator, you sort of interpreted what the students were feeling and how they presented their case to you. Sure, and I, that, that was one of the reasons I felt uh, comfortable trying to do this. I wanted to give both sides. And I, right. although my initial... Um, um, sympathies then and now still lie with the students and what they were trying to do. I tried to take a broader look, and I think probably what affected me most in my role as administrator was there was a reorganization in 2001 when uh, President Kerwin came in and he wanted to reduce the number of vice presidents. So I went from vice president for finance to vice president for business and business and finance, and that included then having the reporting line for public safety. The day that the existing vice president left, and I took over that reporting line, was September 11th, 2001. Mm. So all of a sudden now, the worrying about terrorism and safety and all that was on my desk along with other people, but uh, I was the senior university official with that responsibility. And when that happened, I thought to myself, God, I wonder what it must have been like here in the late 60s when you had all that stuff going on to feel you were responsible for student safety and all that crazy stuff was going on. So um, I, I think I've been objective in how I've treated this in terms of what the university was trying to do. And what I, I try to point out is that in some cases, the university was very successful in diffusing dangerous situations. In other cases, they were kind of heavy-handed and they made it worse. And so understanding when that happened and why is really an important part of this narrative. Mm-hmm. And when you're thinking about those things and looking at, you know, the heavy-handed or the the fair, you're in some ways making a broad categorization, but in some ways you're also thinking about here's what specific people did at specific times. And you're writing about those people and you're interviewing some Mm -hmm. of those people. What did you feel when you had to go back after you'd done the interviews, done the archival research, and you're starting to write now the stories and being specific about people? Mm -hmm. And in some cases saying, you know, if this person hadn't done this or that, things might have been better. What was that emotional reaction for you as you were writing? A bit of a conflict, and probably the classic example is Gordon Carson, who was the vice president of business and finance back then, who I actually had met in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he came off to me at that meeting, and I remember it very well. We were meeting with him to complain about the dorm rule that required students to live in the dorms. And he was polite to us, but he, he, it struck me that he was kind of condescending uh, you know, what did we know what we were talking about and that thing? And then I went through it. And for, unfortunately, he's passed away, so I didn't have a chance to interview him. He also did not do an interview, an oral history interview with the archives like a lot of the other vice presidents did. So he didn't have a chance to 
clarify the record. And a lot of the other vice presidents took shots at him. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I'm saying, so, all right, I've been down that road. I know what that is. So he, I kind of struggled a little bit with how I didn't want to do a hatchet job on him. On the other hand, for example, I found a letter in the archives that he had written to a businessman in Toledo. This was in the summer of 1970, so it was after the 1970 riots. The gist of the letter was that after the Kent State shootings and what happened there, the National Guard has de facto been disarmed. Well, meaning they can't go around shooting unarmed students anymore. Mm -hmm. And he thought that that was terrible and that the communists were going to overrun the, the campuses because there wouldn't be any way to stop them. So what he was asking this businessman who had connections in Europe, he said he had seen and heard about the water cannons that the German government used against protesters and wanted to explore the idea of getting water cannons for OSU. Now, then I dug around in this file, and I found that the Nixon Justice Department got involved in this because it was a foreign, potentially a foreign transaction. They recommended against it. They said these, these cannons are, are very dangerous and to work. They have to be highly trained, and they tend to uh, inflame situations. So it was never followed through. Fortunately, the university never got them. But the fact that he was thinking that way and framed it in that way told me that that I had to at least lay that out. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wrote the letter. It's not like somebody's misinterpreting what he said, and I quote directly from the letter. Right. Um, President Fawcett was a much more difficult person to get armed. I didn't want to make this purely villains and heroes. Right. Uh, I wanted different degrees, and, and Fawcett was a very complex character. You know, as a university president for that whole period, uh, he obviously had a lot to do with what happened. But I know enough now from being in the administration and having served for five presidents that there are some things the president can control and some he can't, he or she can't. And so finding a balanced view of, of Novice Fawcett was a real challenge. And in fact, the concluding chapter talks about that. And I describe him as, as a man in the middle. From below, he had the students pressing for more change and more rapidly. From above, he had elected officials in his own board tell him to slow down change and crack down on protesters. And so he tried to, the word we would use today is triangulate through all that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he was successful and sometimes he wasn't. And so where he was and why and where he was and wasn't is a, a whole interesting theme that goes through the book. Right. So as you're working through this and as you're doing the research on it, um, you come to it, as we've said, with the, these two different viewpoints, the student and the administrator. What are some things that you found that really surprised you? That you, Like you said, triangulate. You find this third piece where you go, I really didn't expect that. This is something yeah. new, like the water cannons. Yeah. Um, I imagine was kind of a surprise. That was a surprise. What, what were there some other things that you said, wow, I didn't expect to see that or find these kinds of things, things that you bring up now at, at cocktail parties or say, this well, is something you don't yeah. know about Ohio State? Well, the single biggest surprise was that that major confrontation at Neil and 11th occurred before Cambodia and Kent State. So that mm -hmm. there was a lot that goes to that. I was also surprised, presently, pleasantly surprised by how active the faculty, particularly through what they call the Green Ribbon Commission, who are faculty members who wore green ribbons after the, the riot started, who stood between the National Guard and the students to try and keep the peace. In fact, they started doing that before, but they even did it after the Kent State shooting. So you mm. can imagine the same day or the day after those shootings, people standing between Ohio National Guard with loaded rifles, because they were loaded down here as well, 
and angry students, some of whom were throwing stuff at the guard and to stand between them to keep the peace. I, I quoted one of the student leaders as saying those were some of the real heroes of that. Another mm -hmm. one of the surprises involving that is I got to talk to the gentleman who commanded the 1st National Guard unit called Ohio State on midnight of April 29th in the morning of April 30th and get his perspective. And I asked him about the loaded weapons issue. And he said, yeah, that was policy of the Ohio National Guard, for which I think they were rightfully criticized for. Mm -hmm. But he said his interpretation was very different from the interpretation of the National Guard officers at Kent State. He was worried that if they were his, his troops, he thought his troops were well-trained and disciplined, but he was worried that one trigger-happy soldier could create an incident. So his interpretation of loaded rifles meant that they did load a, a magazine into their M1 rifles, so they were loaded. But uh, anyone who's handled a rifle will tell you just having a, a round in a, in a magazine doesn't load the rifle. You have to pull a charging handle and, in essence, cock the weapon so there is a, a round seated in the chamber, which would mean all you would have to do then is flick off the safety and start firing. So what he made his soldiers do is they could go ahead and load their magazine, but they couldn't cock the weapons to load around in the chamber. And he and his officers inspected every soldier before they went out online to make sure their chambers were empty. And mm. I think that degree of care and restraint on his part and the other National Guard officers here at Ohio State contributed to this not having quite the terrible outcome that it did at Kent. Mm -hmm. uh, another interesting, this is on a totally different topic, Another, but it was a surprise, was the degree to which Ohio State was involved in putting a man on the moon. One of the things the federal government wanted universities to do at the start of the 1960s, it really started after the Russians put Sputnik up in 1957, the first satellite. Which I think we were the only people that could track, right? Yeah, Ohio, Ohio State, State was the only one that could track it. Yeah, and that, yeah. That, um, uh, those uh, antennas are still out there at the, in the, on West Campus. So the government wanted to make sure we didn't fall behind the Russians. So they, they engaged the largest research universities in the race for space. And Ohio State had a number of contributions. I won't do all of them. We'd be here all day. But for example, those pressurized suits that John Glenn wore, those were designed by a veterinarian and a physician here at Ohio State. <laughs> How did the vet get involved? I, I don't know. I guess it, yeah. Well, I, I think they experimented with him on animals. So right. he would have been involved. Uh, the, the fuel that was in the Saturn rocket, the solid fuel, was developed here at our rocket propulsion lab. A lot of the uh, navigational uh, stuff in space was developed here. Some of the materials were developed here. The, my favorite one is they wanted to test the, uh, that solid food that they used in space. Mm -hmm. So who better to test it on than graduate students? So they got a, <laughs> four graduate student volunteers to go down to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, lock them up for six weeks like they're on a space mission, right. and eat this uh, food. And in the end, they said uh, the food was okay. But it was they weird. survived. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was that at least that good yeah. to have survived it. Well, one of the things that I thought was uh, really interesting is that if we take a step back in time, um, the, to the 1962 uh, Rose Bowl, uh, mm -hmm. invitation, which the Ohio State University declined for a variety of reasons, Correct. some of them having to do with um, the deal that was being struck at Correct. the time. And um, it was also a really contentious uh, between the football coach, Woody Hayes, right. and the head of the Ohio State Alumni Association, who in turn 
referred to the Columbus Dispatch coverage of the Rose Bowl bid. And this is uh, one of my favorite quotes in, in your book as, quote, manufactured news stories that would make Pravda blush with envy. Uh, Pravda being, of course, the party newspaper in Soviet Russia. Tell me about uh, the 62 Rose Bowl bid and some of the, the people involved in it. Oh, it's a fascinating thing. Well, the two key protagonists were Woody Hayes, the legendary football coach, and Jack Fullen, the legendary uh, secretary of the Alumni Association. And the two were very much alike. They're very much uh, strong Ohio State supporters. They strongly believed what they believed. And if they believed what they believed, they weren't ready to give ground. And uh, Jack Fullen had been a student here and was a Lantern editor, among other things. He was also, I think, a varsity wrestler and, and an athlete. And came back, went to Florida, came back, and for 30 years then was secretary of the Alumni Association. So he was regarded as one of the most uh, uh, proficient and powerful alumni association heads in the country. And Woody Hayes, of course, was regarded as one of the best, rightfully, one of the best football coaches in the country. So he had two headstrong People and they looked at things a little different. Initially, Fullen was a supporter of Woody Hayes when Woody Hayes came here. And when people got on Woody his second year because he wasn't winning enough, Jack Fullen supported him. Jack Fullen was concerned. He didn't want what he called the football tail wagging the academic dog. So he supported football and athletics but didn't want people to go overboard. Uh, no one knows for sure, but there is some evidence that there was a rupture between Woody Hayes and Jack Fullen over a Sports Illustrated story in 1956 or 57 that alleged recruiting violations at Ohio State. And Woody admitted that he provided additional money or jobs, I think, to his students for financial reasons. And, and people then determined that that violated NCAA rules. There was an investigation. I think OSU got put on probation. Mm -hmm. And Woody always thought whether it was true or not, that Jack Fullen had something to do with Sports Illustrated getting that story. So that's where the bad blood started between the two of them. The irony of all this was this originally started as a battle between the Big Ten and what was then called, I think, the Pacific Conference. It would now be called the Pac-10 over how the Rose Bowl receipts were destroyed. This always just comes down to money. <laughs> and so there were five universities, of which Ohio State was one, but Michigan that wasn't, in the Big Ten that said, you know, this contract expires. We aren't going to renew it until we get a better deal out of the Rose Bowl committee. Right. And so that's when, while that contract had expired, OSU won the, the Big Ten that year. And, in fact, was the number one. The irony of this is, I love this, the year before, everybody was getting on Woody Hayes because they said he was out of touch with the new coaching in football, and he was ineffective in using his halfbacks. Okay, so they're on his case. So in the 61 season, Woody comes up with two halfbacks, a guy by the name of Paul Warfield and a guy by the name of Matt Snell, both of whom would go on to careers in the National Football League and the Football League Hall of Fame. And all of a sudden, OSU not only has a great foot, fullback, it has two great halfbacks. It just rolls over the opposition. Mm -hmm. This was a great OSU team. They tied, I think, Texas Christian the first game, didn't lose the rest of the year. So they were the favor to go to the Rose Bowl. So the Rose Bowl invitation comes in, but because there was no contract, it had to be approved first by athletic council and then by faculty council. Athletic council approved it on a narrow vote, but they approved it. it then went to faculty council and, and in a very contentious meeting about the role of football on campus and so forth, 
the faculty council voted it down by like three votes, 24 to 23 or something like that. So that's what started the uproar. OSU actually turned down then the Rose Bowl invitation. Mm -hmm. And students were upset and they marched downtown and everything. And Woody Hayes and uh, Woody was very careful not to criticize the university or the faculty. So he focused his ire on Jack Fullen. <laughs> and Jack Fullen wasn't going to take it, so he fired right back at Woody. Right. It was a very, very... Um, contentious thing. There was a group then of alumni that got together to try to throw Fullen out in the alumni elections. Right. And in fact, a slate of anti-Fullen people got elected, but they weren't a majority. Then the next year it settled down some and Fullen was able to beat that back. Uh, a lot of people argue that OSU football took a, a step back for four or five years. It was hard for Woody to recruit because the other Big Ten coaches would say, don't go to Ohio State, they don't value football, football stuff. Right, yeah. But, of course, Woody made um, fools out of them when he came back and won the national championship in 69. The other irony out of this is one of the universities that originally voted with Ohio State to reject the new contract until they had what they wanted was the University of Minnesota. When Ohio State turned down the Rose Bowl invitation, Minnesota got it. Now, if they had any class, they would have turned it down as well. But no, they went ahead to the Rose Bowl, and they won. It was their only Rose Bowl appearance and the only time they won. So thank you very much. Right. We've just lost all the uh, listeners in Minnesota. Uh, I, I also found it amusing that um, the when the people got upset and they marched um, to, in support of Woody Hayes, they marched down to the State House. And I think this is the time when it turned out that the um, the governor wasn't in. Right. And so they turned around and marched back. Right. <laughs> it, was just, it was a long march. Right. You know, for, well, darn it, we'll just come back. Well, and, and then they were milling around uh, the corner of uh, 15th and High and had, had done what by later standards would be minimal property damage, but they had done sun. <laughs> and what finally got them to go home is the uh, captain of the football team got on a, a, a PA system and said, look, the football team's accepted this. Woody Hayes has accepted this. Mm -hmm. Go home. And actually, they did. The students went home. Okay. But, boy, it took, the, the fallout from that went on for quite a while. Right. So on the cover of your book, um, I noticed that you've got a, uh, which I believe is a policeman in a gas mask. And he's leaning against an Ohio State sign that was, uh, I think, near the Oval. Correct. Um, and I think it's actually near the library, is my yeah. suspicion. Um, so... When you look at things like this and you, you think back on it, how does reviewing photos and some of the stories affect you on a personal level, especially as you, say, walk around campus and you say, oh, this is where that sign was. It's not there anymore, but this is where it was, and you know, this is how everything's changed. How does oh, that affect very you? Very much. I, I put a lot of time into deciding which photos to put in <laughs> originally. Well, to take a step back, the book I wrote earlier, the Vietnam book I wrote, had about, I think, 15 photos in it or something. A number of people who read it told me they really enjoyed the photos because I try to get situations that show emotion rather than just a picture of someone standing around. Right. So I, I got into it with this, and initially I had like a hundred and some photos of the university press that unless you want this volume to cost $10 million, you better find some way. Of because it's it expensive to, to print the photos or the, yeah. the, the mm -hmm. permissions to, to pay no, for No, not them. the permission because okay. almost all of them were from either the archives or the lantern which okay. I already had permission to use. Uh, so it would make the bulk of the, the volume right. and that kind of thing. What they what they OSU Press did agree to do is they're, we're going to put those online, the ones we didn't use, online uh, so people can access them and see them. But I, I took the ones then I thought were most representative of the situation and put them in there. My favorite, if you were to ask me that, is one of um, 
It's a group of students who are the, the leaders of the strike sitting at tables across from empty chairs in front of the administration building. And what they were doing is a guerrilla theater to protest the fact that they felt the university wouldn't talk to them. So here are the, the leaders of the strike sitting in, ta- in chairs and tables across from empty chairs, kind of the no debate show, with a, a, an angry crowd behind them shaking their fist. I mean, it's great guerrilla theater. But the part I love about it is the students, if you look at the picture, are flashing their student IDs. And the reason they're doing that is the university administration claimed, well, this really isn't our students. It's a bunch of outside agitators. Uh, So it's kind of, the hell with you guys. Look, we're students. Here are our IDs. (laughs) It's a a real, it's a gem. Right. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today, Bill Security, about your book, The Ohio State University in the 60s, The Unraveling of the Old Order. Thank you very much, Bill Security. Thank you. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.